Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome, dear friends, to a very special edition of America First with me, Sebastian Gorka, on the Salem Radio Network with somebody who I've been wanting to sit down for the longest time to discuss the important issues that are shaping today's social, political uh, culture. He is the author, the co-author with Helen Pluckrose of Cynical Theories, uh, Professor James Lindsay, a book that you can see is well-worn. This has been through the wars in my house because it's so important. Uh, James, welcome to America First. Thanks, Seb. Good, good to be here. So um, for those who aren't familiar with, with your book or, or, or your backstory, um, exp- give us you know, the thumbnail of who you are, what your background is, and then we'll dive in. All right. So I actually became low-key famous a couple of years ago by writing a bunch of fake academic papers with my co-author, Helen Pluckrose, and also another uh, fellow, Peter Bogosian at Portland State University. So we wrote... 20 fake academic papers in the course of about 10 months, submitted them to higher respected feminist philosophy journals, feminist social work journals, feminist this, feminist that, gender studies this, critical race theory that. Seven of those were accepted for publication, one of which won an award. That paper was about tracking dog sex and (laughs) training men like dogs as a result. And uh, so this made the front page of, of something like 400 newspapers worldwide. It was in the print edition in, in, in Shanghai. It was on the front page of the New York Times. It was, you know, pretty big, pretty big news. We were hoping that it would reveal the scandal within the, the, the academic system. And the academic system decided to pretend nothing happened. And so it did not, it revealed it, but nothing changed. So then we took what we learned, uh, Helen and I did, and drilled down into part of the history of where this corrupt scholarship came from. And that's the genesis of the book Cynical Theories, which describes the postmodern influence on critical theory, which is basically where the woke movement that we deal with today came from. Yeah, and, and you and, and your colleagues, you really, as far as I'm concerned, you're on the forefront of explaining how we got here, not just complaining and saying it's bad and freedom of speech, but actually um, taking apart, disassembling and describing in your book, Cynical Theories, how we got here. So um, how does, let me ask you this, how does somebody with your sterling credentials in physics and mathematics end up dissecting critical theory? You see people get treated unfairly long enough, and you decide to look into it. And the next thing you know, you're writing papers about dog sex and rewriting chapters of Mein Kampf and getting feminist journals to accept them. Okay, I wanted to ask you about this. So so people understand yeah. you're not just doing this for fun or, or to poke, you know, the, uh, poke at the eye of, of, of the people in the ivory tower. Explain to me the, the paper that you wrote. So you did 20 hoax papers, seven mm-hmm. of them that were published. Explain the one where you took a certain Mr. Hitler's publications. What did you do with that? So 
what we did was we took the twelfth chapter of Mein Kampf, where he he lays out in his his you know rather bombastic rhetoric the need for a a movement which became the Nazi Party and what it should look like, and we basically took out everywhere that he said our movement and replaced it with intersectional feminism, and then just tried to figure out how to make it work. And so we forced a bunch of scholarship about what's called choice feminism, which we said was selling it. Basically, what we said was women being themselves is selling out the intersectional movement, and we need solidarity in intersectional feminism in order to replace that. And we just re- we just retooled Hitler's rhetoric and Hitler's construction uh, from that chapter of his his own book, and we submitted that to first a journal called Feminist Theory, and we thought this has no chance. And Feminist Theory peer-reviewed it and rejected it, but they gave us really useful suggestions and were surprisingly warm to it. So we retooled the essay based on their suggestions and submitted it to a feminist social work journal called Aphelia, and Aphelia accepted it. They, they thought this was great. And, I mean, it has an eight-point plan. I mean, it has the whole thing, like an eight-point plan to remake feminism. It's like no toleration of half measures. But based the upon whole Hitler's th- eight points. It, yeah, it's Hitler. Right. It's straight Hitler. And, and So, I mean, at that point, I was like, you know, I've always been, you know, sort of left of center. I've never been a fan of Rush Limbaugh. But I was like, holy crap, feminazis. What are you, you going to do? <laughs> Fabulous. So the feminazis that Rush gave us. So this is a fascinating point. The first thing's first. You need to... Everybody, I don't care what your politics are, you have to understand how we are here today with Title IX being destroyed by one executive order, the rights of young girls being just nullified by by what is critical theory. So the book is Cynical Theories, Cynical Theories. It's co-authored by my guest, James Lindsay, and also Helen Pluckrose. Follow him at Conceptual James on Twitter. Have you had any issues on Twitter lately? I'm just curious. Because we, 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 not we lately. Were, not lately. Okay, we'll, we'll get into some. I had some over the summer. Where I just got randomly banned for 12 hours here and there. But it's so far with the purge, all, I mean, I lost 10,000 followers and gained most of them back now. But uh, I have not had direct problems. I anticipate problems. I get a warning in my email almost every day now that somebody has reported something and they found no violation of German law. So therefore, I can remain on Twitter today. Um, I get that every morning. I have, I have a warning in my email now. All right, so, it's it's but- at it's at conceptual James. Also, the website is newdiscourses.com. So guys, just bookmark it, check them out, follow them. Newdiscourses.com. Now, let me start with with why I invited you on this show. So um, it perturbs me, but I actually like it when I find it difficult to put somebody in a box and to categorize. But when, when, when classical taxonomies break down, I go, oh, that, that's an embuggerance. And I found that with you and especially your social media and also your, you know, your, just your tweets, not just your interview. your interviews are fascinating. But if you read James Lindsay's social media, you're like, he's a lefty, isn't he? Is he a first... Amendment absolutist, and I see you, you know, getting out of a swish little sports car at a conservative freedom of speech event in Florida a few months ago to say, dude, you're intriguing, and we got to get you on the show, and that's why, why you're here. So um, <laughs> if I, 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 you may reject this request, but for the, you know, totality of this interview, is there a label that you're comfortable with? I, I hate labels myself. I've, I've taught in 
you know, academe. I hate being called a professor. I now have a national radio show. I hate being called a journalist. Um, is there a label that you're comfortable with out of curiosity, James? You can call me James. <laughs> Nicely done. No, I don't like them. I don't Good. like labels. Good. I don't want to be constrained by... I don't, so I actually thought this for many years, and I've written about this many years ago. I fear the idea that once you accept a label, oh, I'm a liberal, oh, I'm a conservative, oh, I'm the, that you start trying to live up to that label. Yeah. And it starts constraining your thinking. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Even no. the label free thinker, which shouldn't do that, does that. So <laughs> all right. no label. Perfect. Love it. That's why you're all the more sympathetic. No, this is a label-free zone for the next 50 minutes. Okay. Um, James, let's, let's start because it's all too easy. If, if, if you don't read academic journals, if you don't know the difference between you know, Derrida and Descartes, you can get lost in the woods very easily and say, oh, this is just Obama or this is just Donald Trump. What you have documented in Cynical Theories is documentable. There is a progression. There are thinkers, names, trends. So let's start with where the big pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fit in. Critical theory is where we are today. Where does it come from? How much of this is really a demonstrable product of postmodernism, anti-colonialism? Can you give us the thumbnail of, yes, this is a clear progression. And, and who do people have to be familiar with to understand today's situation, James? Sure. So there are a lot of pieces. This thing is kind of a Frankenstein's monster yeah. of bad left-wing thought over the course of the last two centuries. So critical theory began in the 1920s. Its objective was to figure out why Marxist revolutions were not happening. And it's, it, it, it decided, the critical theory came into, into being on the belief that Western culture itself resists communism. And so Western culture itself has to be torn down. And so this, there is a very straight line through um, not as much the very first members of the, the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, but that's a name you should pay attention to. Not so much, you know, Georg Lukács, who nobody's paying attention to anymore, but more Max Horkheimer, who is one of his associates, who wrote a book called, or a long essay called Traditional Critical Theory, where he laid out what critical theory is. He paired up with another critical theorist named Theodore Adorno and wrote the book Dialectic of Enlightenment that argues that the product of Enlightenment thought, liberalism, freedom, is always going to be fascism, uh, which is ridiculous. This was taken up most importantly, and the most important name in the critical theory school you need to know is Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse took this up. He wrote an essay in 1965 called Repressive Tolerance that is the logic of the left. It says, and I mean very explicitly, I, I think almost I can quote it from memory, he explicitly says movements from the left must be tolerated. Movements from the right must not be tolerated. Yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was a genetic recoding of the word tolerance to literally mean intolerance. That's right. Exactly. It's one of the more totalitarian documents that you can read. It takes about two hours to read it. It, it does take a little bit of philosophical background. This is about 63, 63 right? 65. 65, right. Right before the riots of 67, 68. And why were those? I mean, people don't understand. They're like, oh, I've never heard of Herbert Marcuse. Every left-wing intellectual in 1965 knew who Herbert Marcuse was. He was a rock star yeah. on, on in leftist circles. And so the critical theory branch is extremely important. But it 
kind of burned itself out. People got sick of these stupid radicals coming out of the 60s and 70s. So of these French thinkers, these postmodern thinkers in, in the 60s and going into the 70s especially, who are doing something completely different. And they have come up with this crazy idea that there is no access to truth. Every attempt to claim what's true is actually instead an application of their power. It's oppression. And the, it's oppression, yeah. It is an application of power to claim that something is true because you have to have power to put yourself in the position to say it's my judgment what is and is not science, which is kind of a scary thing. You know, they're kind of right if you look at what, what the Biden administration is doing right now. So anyway, in the 1980s and 90s, you have a raft of very radical feminist thinkers primarily, mostly in the school it's called black feminism, which is a school of thought that found much of this this postmodern view of truth very useful to their critical theory activism, and they put the two together. So when you talk about the big puzzle pieces, you have this radical agenda to tear down the West in order to, at the cultural level, to make room for, for a communist revolution in the West, which they deemed impossible without cultural revolution first, finding the postmodern view of truth that truth itself is just power. And therefore, you have no obligation to the truth any longer. You have no obligation to reality any longer. It all becomes about lived experience and their feelings. And I don't want to overstate the postmodern influence of, of lived experience. This actually draws, draws back to Walter Benjamin, who was one of the earliest critical, think, critical theory school thinkers from the 1920s, who had this long, tortured essay about the two different German words that mean experience – one of which means this, one of which means what we now understand as lived experience, which basically means I'm right, shut up, because I feel that way. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I'm sorry to do this, and maybe it's an impossible question. Um, I've published peer-reviewed journals. I've read more than I would care to even try and count. So I've been there, seen it, done it. But at the end of the day, maybe it's because the field that I spend most of my time is, is national security – I don't. I, I'm always interested in the so what question, the praxis of it all. Where, where, where is it going to? I know it's outrageous to do that with your know, PhD, but for me, and I, if I can allow, if I can ask you to channel the first critical thinkers and then the French thinkers, I have to ask this question on behalf of those who really want an answer, if possible. If you're going to deconstruct the West, and if you're going to say. Truth doesn't exist. There is no objective truth, or if somebody says there is, then they're being an oppressor. What is the end state that these people, Adorno, Marcuse, even Alinsky, are positing? Is, is there something that replaces the West, or is, is it simply a nihilism whereby the dismantling is okay and the positing of multiple truths, which of course means there is no truth, is the end. Did they, did they ever get to the end state or is it like Marx who, who gave us the tools on how to dissemble, to, to take apart, disassemble capitalism, but never really gave communists the tools to build Nirvana? Uh, is this a foolish question? Did they ever give an answer, James? Oh, sure they do. They, they give different answers, which makes the, the present moment complicated. The French thinkers, the postmodernists, were actually just nihilistic. They believed that just everybody having their own truth and, and diving down to the level of just base experience was ideal because then there's no power, there's no manipulation, etc. They think that the, the fake news, whatever it is that we live in right now, media disaster is the ideal state of affairs, which is horrific. 
So so ca- so, so cacophony is the end state. Correct. For them, yeah. They right. just wanted to tear apart, just to deconstruct, just to complain, just to take apart. They were post-Marxist. They were depressed. <laughs> Marxism had failed. They Really, Marxism had failed, but you can't go back to capitalism or liberalism from their perspective. So what's left? Well, take it all apart. Everything sucks. Um, that's really the kind of mindset from which they came. The critical theorists, on the other hand, are very, very clear about what they intend. They intend for liberation, what they call liberation. Marcuse is very clear on it. He has an essay in 69 called An Essay on Liberation. Um, he talks about it extensively even 15 years earlier in his book Eros and Civilization. Their goal was liberation from the oppressions of society. We talked about um, repressive tolerance, and he says nowhere on earth does a society that actually works. Nowhere does such a thing exist. What he wants is a society in which you can have your cake and eat it too. And in other words, what he wants is the same thing that Marx wanted, which was this, if we take apart the, the bad thing, and then somewhere, you know, there's a scene missing, but then on the other side of that, everybody's happy and perfect when everybody thinks the right way. And so he has this utopian dream in repressive tolerance. He says, we have to remember the historical possibilities. What would a Marxist mean by historical possibilities? He would mean Marxism. And then he says, but many thinkers have thought of this now as just being utopian, because it is. And so their vision was the same. The critical theorist vision was the same as Marx. When we get to these woke people who have mixed them together, their vision is much more basic and simple to understand. It's to tear apart everything that prevents them from having power, money, and grift. The woke want their own power, and they don't care what has to get torn apart to get it. One, one name we've left out, and it, it, it's kind of uh, under the surface. There's a frisson, I think, with, with all of these thinkers. And we have to mention it because if you look at those who are the most radical, who used bombs and shot people here in the U.S., the Weather Underground and the radicalized members of the SDS, is Freud. How, how important to all of this was the sexual argument? I mean, the, I don't think it's an accident, James, that, you know, for example, the Weathermen Underground, one of their, their cri de coeur, one of their slogans was smash monogamy. How much is, is sex and and the nuclear family a part and parcel of the targeting uh very much it's it's central i mean when we talk about um marcusa writing a book in 1955 called eros and civilization eros is directly referring to freud in fact the book is his attempt which the the frankfurt school of critical theory took from the beginning as its mission to mix to combine to wed freud and marx into a single cohesive theory which doesn't really work so it's to force um freud and marx together and when you read that you know what marcuse is talking about with liberation he's talking about how capitalism forces people to 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 repress their libidinal urges and to take their libido and their id and they and to, to repress that and channel it into productive work instead of just i guess having sex and fighting all the time so um very strong there. If you look, for example, another thinker we haven't mentioned, very important, is Antonio Gramsci. Yes. Antonio Gramsci is an uh, Albanian-Italian uh, from the 1920s who was thrown in prison by the fascists in 26 and wrote copiously when he went to prison uh, what are called the prison notebooks. It's the 3,000 pages of copious writing. And Gramsci was translated into English in the 1970s. In 1970 at Notre Dame, that's an interesting by, thing. By, by, by somebody, by somebody's dad. father, right. By Pete yeah, Buttigieg's by... father, who I think his photograph is still on, what is it, the uh, the Gramsci Appreciation Society's front page? Yeah, 
And so Gramsci <laughs> had this idea that there were five pillars of Western civilization that had to be taken down. And those five are religion, family, media, education, and law. Religion, you can see family, where they yeah, media, education, and law. You can see where they've moved in. You can see what they've done. They've taken this as an instruction manual. Gramsci wrote this in prison. He died, I think, in 1937, and immediately after his death, his notebooks were smuggled out to Moscow. They were shared by the Communist Party. It's likely that they influenced Mao in his his creation of the Cultural Revolution. It's very almost certain that they influenced Paulo Ferreri in Brazil, who became the big education reformer that ruined Brazilian education that then got taken up in the 1980s by a guy, Henry Giroux, who ruined American education. Uh, and considers Paulo Freire to be his his kind of intellectual godfather. And so I guess you can't say godfather with communists, but at any rate, um, at any rate, Gramsci is very influential. One of his five targets was family. So family is in the crosshairs. Sexuality for the critical theorists has always been a huge thing. Um, Eros and civilization is is hard proof of that. But their goal was to mix Marx and Freud into their idea of liberation is liberation from anything like well capitalism and ordered society that represses those libidinal urges. In other words, so you're not having orgies all the time. Um, and he's really the he's really the granddaddy of it all, is he not? Is Gramsci where where because for me Gramsci, in addition to the five pillars, is where where finally there's a, a, a playbook for how to get Marxism to function and to break down robust Western societies that have a middle class and a nuclear family. Because I think the observation, I don't want to oversimplify it, is that, you know, Marx, Marx's ideas only worked in, in feudal or post-feudal societies like Tsarist Russia or Mao's China. But when you come to a society like America or the UK, it's just not going to work with strong Judeo-Christian middle classes. So what you do, you have to dismantle it. And, and then later... With Alinsky, you dismantle it from the inside. So, so Gramsci, Gramsci is really the beginning of, of. Is it what is the best label? The new left? No, the new left is Marcuse. Okay. Um, the the right label for Gramsci is one you're not allowed to say. It's cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism. Uh, yeah. That is, you're not allowed to say that. They've built that up. Wikipedia has removed the entry on cultural Marxism or replaced it with wow. cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. Um, you're not allowed to talk about it anymore. Yeah, you're anti-Semitic. When did, when did that happen? About a month and a half ago. Oh, my gosh. Cultural, yeah, cultural Marxism for decades was something we studied during the Cold War. Yes, and they're they're suppressing that. So um, that's what Gramsci did, though. Wow. That, that's what Gramsci did. All right, let, uh, let, let's jump to today, all through the new left into today. Talk to us about social justice. Where, where does this phrase social justice originate from and become the, the main battering ram for, for the people who have become the grandchildren of all these thinkers? Right, so social justice is actually very old as a concept and, and complicated. The first, I think, use of it was in the 18th century. It actually arose from Jesuit priests. Um, it kind of died out from it didn't gain a lot of traction here or there a little bit within the Catholic Church, especially in the Jesuit side. Uh, but eventually the big kind of rebirth or revival of social justice took place in the very early 20th century following a man named Walter Rauschenbusch 
who had traveled. He, he was a, a minister, a Baptist minister in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, traveled to London, stayed with Sidney and Beatrice Webb, studied with the Fabian Society, which is a socialist society, uh, advocates incrementalism, wolf in sheep's clothing, hidden, hidden agenda kind of approach to reshape the world by heating it up and then molding it to the heart's desire, as their famous window glass window says. And so... He studied with them a couple of years and came back and penned something called the Social Gospel, Walter Rauschenbusch. Walter Rauschenbusch is a grandfather of the American postmodern pragmatist Richard Rorty, so you have another link to the postmodernists here. Um, But social justice had a huge revival in left-wing Christianity at that point. Is it connected to liberation theory? Is it connected, connected to Latin America? Later, yes. So what happened in the 19, late 50s and going into the 1960s, liberation theory really took off following the French psychoanalyst, uh, I guess the Algerian French psychoanalyst, um, Franz Fanon. Yes. And Fanon, was, Fanon advocated violence against colonizers. Everything's colonized. You have to be violent against the colonizers to restore your um, sense of pride in yourself. So he advocated violence openly. Marcuse got very involved in the liberation movements, the liberation movements of South America, of Vietnam, etc., um, which in Vietnam we call the Viet Cong. Um, these, these movements fused together, and they took up social justice as one of their primary causes. And so the social gospel and social justice. Meanwhile, you, and to be fair, you have John Rawls, who is a very left but liberal philosopher writing about social justice, I think in a very useful, positive way, whether you agree or disagree with everything Rawls said or much of what Rawls said, at least he's coming from an open liberal perspective. He's not coming from a very highly agendist perspective. Um, And you'll find that these people that brand themselves social justice now never comment on Rawls except to criticize him for his liberalism. They never cite him. They never refer to his his famous veil of ignorance thought experiment. They never draw any of that liberal tradition. They criticize his liberalism. So these people are are very much not that. Um, And so there was other thinking on social justice. There's religious, there's liberal, there's even conservative approaches to social justice when you talk about, uh, you know, acts of charity. The Catholics, I know, are huge with, with, I forgot how they they have it, acts of service. Um, There's there's a phrase for it, and I've forgotten it. But... um, there's lots of approaches to social justice, and this one happens to be critical theory that has taken it up, and it's completely obliterated. It's completely co-opted, and, and, and it's like gone inside and, and taken over the entirety of the idea of social justice and made it about critical theory using the kind of postmodern, loosey-goosey relationship to truth. Um, and this whole idea, by the way, of getting inside, we can also – not to – drag back to that but we can tag that to Gramsci too he said that it was critical with a hegemonic culture to create to get inside and create a counter hegemony within right to get inside a state and create a counter state within which we at this point are referring to as a deep state which we're not allowed to talk about <laughs> indeed indeed the book is cynical theories our guest is James Lindsay follow him at conceptual James on Twitter and also at newdiscourses.com okay so the, the latest iteration how do we plug in Black Lives Matter and Antifa? I know Antifa goes back to Weimar Germany and, and pre-Third Reich, but talk to us about the, the, the modern instantiation of these organizations and, and their connections to things like the black feminist movement. Sure. I mean, the, the linchpin here primarily is going to be 
Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse, huge in the 1960s, again, wrote Repressive Tolerance that became kind of the guidebook ahead of Alinsky for how to think about tolerance, how to think about things from a left-wing perspective. He was the mentor, the Ph.D. mentor to one Angela Davis, yeah. who is instrumental in the Black Lives Matter movement. Angela Davis says that she had a two-stage radicalization. The first stage of radicalization was Marcusa. He taught her, he, she said, and he radicalized her. And then her second stage was when she went to Palestine and got involved with what is now the BDS movement. And so she was radicalized, taught, trained by Herbert Marcuse with his liberationist ideas that he he had forged together out of critical theory. Now, you mentioned, you know, Antifa and its, its roots in Weimar Germany and you know, it's something to do. Everybody kind of can understand that it has something to do with the Nazis and what was it, anti-fascist action or something Action's like that in yeah, German. Yeah, my German's not. So, yeah, yeah. So, what happened was that Marcuse studied this very closely. In fact, when he first fled Germany with the Frankfurt School during World War II, due to the Nazis, he was originally employed by what became the CIA to explain how the Nazis operate. So he became an expert in Nazi operations and in brown shirt operations, and he realized how useful this would be for a movement for his uh, for his vision. So he was like, same techniques, different politics, should be okay. So he actually repurposed the brown shirt techniques, and this, together with Franz Fanon, if you read any of Antifa's handbooks or manuals, they mention Marcusa and Fanon all the time. So this violence against the colonizer, this everything in repressive tolerance, um, Marcusa argues, in the entire post-fascist era, where we live in a world where fascism has already happened and come into the world, we are always in a state of imminent threat. We are always on the precipice of tipping into fascism. So you need something that will repress any movement that might become fascistic. And Antifa stepped up and filled those shoes. Black Lives Matter has grown out of well, – we mentioned Angela Davis, so we have that connection there. But it grew out of the black liberationist movement combined with the queer radical feminist movement. It, its origins really would trace back – I mean, obviously, it didn't come into existence till 2013 after Trayvon Martin was shot in, in San, Sanford, Florida. Um, but its roots really go back to what's called the Combahee River Collective, which was a group of radical queer black feminists who gathered together and put out a statement that became the genesis of intersectionality, that became the genesis of black feminism as a proper movement. And it was the fusion of black liberationism and queer radical black. I mean, these were angry black lesbians is what they were, just to say who they were. And that's really where Black Lives Matter got all of its its intellectual um, origins. So, you know, that has ties back to black nationalism, black power. They prefer Malcolm X over over um, Martin Luther King, for example, as far as the radicalism from the, the in the civil rights movement. And there's been kind of a continuous tradition. And then through the 1980s and 90s, you have another thing. Angela Davis was instrumental in helping form called critical race theory. Everybody's heard of that. That became much of the intellectual underpinning of this movement. Now, if I understand correctly, though, Black Lives Matter was originally, like so many other things, a grassroots movement that, whether its complaints were totally legitimate or not, is a matter of debate, but it was certainly a grassroots movement of frustrated individuals who saw a problem, rightly or wrongly, and wanted to fight against it, and that that movement was quickly co-opted by these radicals 
who are very, very well-funded and, as we've now heard, well-trained Marxists who saw the opportunity in this movement. So the Cabahi River Collective, uh, the, the continuity from that going forward with this very radical, critical race movement saw the opportunity in probably 2014 and 15 very early on to co-opt the Black Lives Matter grassroots movement. And then it was just astroturfed into this very radical um, wedge against Western civilization. And that's where that comes from. Um, okay, let's step back a moment and let me, let me bring this right to the present day. We are having members of the Biden cabinet be um, confirmed, testify before Congress. This is the latest. This is a man who will be in charge of one of our departments, who is asked by a senator a very reasonable question that comes right out of these critical theories and will affect real people, not just adults, but children. So... Um, Let's play the cut from the floor of the Senate. Eric, play video. Um, that concerns me. And I, I think it's this kind of thing is going to lead to really just the vast majority of America just wondering who are these people that think it's okay? From what planet are you from? I mean, to think it's okay that boys would compete with girls in a track meet, that that somehow would be fair. Um, I wonder where feminists are on this. I wonder where the people who supported women's sports are on this. I mean, we all going to be okay with hulking six foot four guys, you know, wrestling against girls. Do it, you know, it just makes no sense whatsoever. And so, I think the fact that you seem to be afraid to answer the question, or you basically do answer the question by saying it's okay without saying it's okay really is a statement to a, a real problem we have and uh, a disconnect between what middle America and what most Americans actually believe. I even think most Democrats don't believe girls should run in the, in the boys' track meet. Uh, you know, boys should run in the girls' track meet. So I'm disappointed in the answer, and uh, I just can't imagine that we're going to have a policy like that nationally. Thank you, Senator. So that cabinet nominee smirking at uh, Senator Paul refused to answer the question, is it fair? Just this question, do you think it's fair as an incoming cabinet member for your administration, for the Biden administration, to allow biological men to compete against high school girls? Absolute, complete sidestep of the answer. Um, I know this is rhetorical, but, but perhaps you have some special insight, James. I thought this was all about fairness and comes out of a feminist, at least partially feminist origins. Where are the feminists today? Uh, you, you follow this stuff. You've written books about it. Are, are any of the classic feminists, are any of the radical new feminists, the second, the third, the fourth wave, reacting to these measures? Or is it just crickets? No, let's give credit where credit's due. The f radical feminists and other feminists are probably the loudest voice fighting against this. So they are definitely speaking up. The problem is, is that the trans lobby has branded them TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical right. feminists, T-E-R-F. And that is a label as bad as you can get labeled with. It will get you knocked off of social media almost immediately if you're credibly accused of it, credibly in their 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 world not r real world um so they are speaking up about it the problem is is that this came out of feminism and it came out of what happened historically 
And you can kind of trace this in, I think, chapter six of Cynical Theories. Um, the feminists created the idea that gender is a social construct. And then the queer theorists developed that further to the idea that sex is a social construct, too. And so what's happening with the feminists is they want to try to maintain gender being a social construct but not sex. And it does, they have no legs to stand on. They can't go back to biology because they've cut their own, their own legs off. But they are speaking up. They are taking action. They are trying. They just don't have the tools. Basically, they bred a dragon and lost control of it. And the dragon's burning their own house. And you don't want to laugh because it matters too much. Um, but, it's, but it's true. And as far as it being fair, I mean, I know that you and I would agree, and I think everyone listening would agree. But if you've not seen there's this website, I think it's called Boys vs. Women. You should look this up. It takes high school boys. It shows graphics of actual record-setting high school boys, the world champion high school boys, against, like, Olympian world record-setting women, different events. It shows what happens. And the boys win something 300 out of 305. Yeah, the, 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 the latest figure is it was published in a, a newspaper again today, uh, one of the Sentinels. The fastest woman in America, she's called Felix, fastest Olympicon, would be destroyed by the 300 fastest high school male track and field athletes. Kids, kids in school, high schools. Which means if this policy that has been inculcated, has been deployed last week by President Biden, had been done 15 years ago, this woman would never have won a medal anywhere because males would have been able to crush her age 16 because they chose to be a girl, quote-unquote, that day. So, um, all right, let, let, we, we've illustrated... This is a thing, by the way, in, in, South, or in countries where soccer is the biggest, football is the biggest sport, they often will let the, girls na the women's national team play against the high school boys' champion of, you know, whatever national team, you know, national high school champion. And the boys win like eight to zero every single time against the women's national team. They just yeah. obliterate them. And, 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 high and, school boys. and, and we're talking about world class. You know, the, the, uh, my friend Chris Plant pointed out a few years ago, the Williams sisters, the best, the best female tennis players. So we're really good. And we challenge any male tennis player ranked beyond 200. So first they've written off the top 200, and then what happens? Number 203 says, okay, I'll take that bet. Crushes, crushes both of them, both of them, the Williams sisters. So uh, the idea that it is the conservatives or the classic liberals who are science deniers, you have to, you have to have a sense of humor when you are denying the role of chromosomes, muscle weight, the role of testosterone over 15, 16 years on a human body. Anyway, okay. We've illustrated yeah. the insanity. Um, th there's one big question that I've had for the longest time. I've written about this in my book, The, the, the War for America's Soul. I, I spent chapter six on, on, on where the new left came from. You've written this whole book, Cynical Theories. Guys, you've got to read it, okay? Follow this man uh, as well uh, on Twitter at ConceptualJames and online at NewDiscourses.com. Here's a historic question. Uh, and you, you managed to rattle this stuff off with such alacrity. I'm sure you, you can give me the answer. Everything that you have described for us, 
from an Italian prison cell with a crippled Albanian, right up to, you know, members of the Biden cabinet saying, Title IX, screw it, we don't need it. None of it was done by some kind of tinfoil hat Illuminati conspiracy. This wasn't, this wasn't executed by the Fabians. Most of the time, these were people talking about it. I mean, I, I've seen the TV interviews with Marcuse. These were people writing the peer-reviewed journals. This is Alinsky writing his little paperback rules for radicals. It didn't happen in secret. This isn't some master plot. So who's really responsible, James Lindsay? I, I, you know, we, we, who allowed this insanity to occur? Because it seems that it was kind of like a sine curve, that, that, it, that, it, that it sprouted and then kind of died a death. Then people got sick of it and bored and said, you're just crazies and ignored them. Then it comes back in the 1990s under another guise or exploited by... So were we... I think it comes from, from, from Justice Bork. Were we just repeatedly, as a culture, as a civilization... And I know you're not allowed to say that. But as a culture, as a civilization, as the West, did we just, like a sine curve, repeatedly lurch for the snooze button is there any culpability that we can point to to be at a point where you know one eo can kill eleven thousand jobs in the name of the environment and the other one can kill every high school track and field girls dreams forever is is there is there responsibility to be apportioned well i was reading the new york times this morning and it said that donald trump is responsible for everything um, thank you <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, what it was is the, the, the entities, it's not an individual, obviously. The institution that's probably most responsible is, in fact, the university system. The university system has essentially rolled over to this line of thinking and never really properly stood up to it since the 1960s in particular. And then once the, I mean, if we want to blame an individual, when, when Bill Clinton signed the federal underwriting of of, of uh, student loans, the universities just went absolutely bonkers and painted themselves into a financial corner to where student services became the one and only thing. But if you really wanted me to point a finger at some set of activists, I would actually say it's the ones who are very successful in education. And so I would blame Henry Giroux more than almost anybody else, because in 1981, he wrote a book that became the guidebook that transformed how all of our schools or colleges of education operate. Every college of education in this country for 40 years almost has completely given over to the idea that we're going to use critical pedagogy. In other words, we're going to teach children to be critical theorists. We're going to teach children to see what's wrong with the world instead of where there are opportunities to build or make something better and to just complain and to gain status for complaining. And, of course, we could weave in the self-esteem movement, which was a horrific mistake in education. But mostly it's these education reformers, if we really wanted to put a thumbtack on somebody more specific. What, what is the title of that book, do you recall? I just read it again yesterday. Well, Not the book, the title. And I've forgotten the but, title. It's and 1981. It's the, the, Henry Giroux. G-I-R-O-U-X. Okay. And it, we could look it up quickly. Um, yeah, I'll look it up. And, and in, in the meantime, so there really is a, a, a center of grab, gravity. There is a focal point for this in terms of the colleges of education, if you had to identify something. 
Yes. If, if in fact, you ask me, you know, under the administration we have now, it's a non-starter. But if you were to ask me a single thing, if you only had one policy recommendation that you could make or one, one change that you could make that would have the most impact, it would be to break the monopoly on teacher certification, which right now, you to become a public sector employee in teacher as a teacher, you have to go through a leftist indoctrination. Breaking that monopoly would be the most influential thing if you had to come down to one single specific, you know, relatively simple thing to do. Open up the field for competition in terms of teacher certification. Make it so that a church can certify teachers. Make it so that somebody can produce a, com- a competing college of education that doesn't have to go through the, the standard accrediting system Although there should, of course, be standards. I'm not saying to throw out all standards. But to make it so that you don't have to rely 100% on leftist indoctrination mills to create educators uh, would we, be we, we a have, massive we have, change. We have several books. We have On Critical Pedagogy. We have Race, Politics, and Pandemic Pedagogy. Neoliberalism's War on Higher Education. Oh, and my, my assistant producer said in 1981, ideology, culture, and the process of schooling. That's it. Because okay. it's, it's usually just referred to as ideology, and okay. I knew that wasn't the whole title. Okay, but ideology, culture, and the process of schooling. I'm ordering it right now so I can educate myself on another crazy person I need to get familiar with. All right, I'm, I'm going to try and – I can't bring the horse – I can't make the horse drink from the trough, but I'm going to try one more time. Is there any culpability on on the other side of this aisle uh, when it comes to conservatives or classical liberals? Did we just allow them to get away with it? And I I look, for example, at my time in in academe, and I look at this concept of peer-reviewed journals, and I I just – it's – this isn't live radio, so I'm going to – it's just a mutual masturbation society. I mean, you just – you write an article to send it to your buddy who you know is on the the review thing, and they're going to review. I mean, this this isn't excellence in truth. This this is just – it really is a a, a mutual pleasuring society. So is there culpability amongst classical liberals and conservatives for getting to a place today where truth – Saying that truth exists is actually controversial, James. Yeah, I um, I reject the premise of your question a little bit because classical liberals and conservatives are not the same thing. Uh, agreed. Um, I'm saying, I actually I'm saying, I'm think saying for both is, of them. I'm saying for both of them. There is an enormous amount of culpability to be laid upon the neoconservatives, the capital C, capital M conservative movement that drove this corporatist and globalist mess yeah. that now is unaccountable to things like the First Amendment and is still driving it with, for example, the Lincoln Project. Um, these guys are absolutely not interested in truth either. They're just as content to play fast and loose with with, with alternative facts or whatever you want to call it in order to uh, push their agenda. And so Explain why you mentioned I don't, one specific organization. I'm really curious. What, what, oh, how, does, how does the Lincoln Project fit into everything we're witnessing? I think the Lincoln Project is specifically a smear campaign to break down what we might call Trumpism, what we I think could be better called MAGA, Make America Great Again. Um, if you want to, I know it's your show, so if you want to call it America First, I suppose <laughs> MAGA's that's okay fine. too. MAGA's fine. MAGA, I think, is probably most appropriate, yeah. though, um, which is this kind of 
not nationalistic but nationistic idea that that people should be able to have nations that are sovereign not subject to supranational entities it's not like rah 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 usa usa although if people want to feel that way about their country more power to them um but that's not the point poland should be able to be poland france should be able to be france the uk should be able to be the uk and so on and that it's a, it's a broader philosophy in that regard and that we should in fact pursue our own national interests as each individual nation, which is really what MAGA, when applied to the MAGA, is that applied to the American context? Yeah. And so these guys are smear artists who are attempting to destroy and discredit that because they are making money and their people are making money hand over fist from the same foreign wars and the same garbage that people turn to Trump to get away from. And I say that being, I was horrified in 2016 by Trump. I was utterly against him. I had. Trump derangement syndrome like everybody else, or half of everybody else, I guess. And now it's like much more clear to me what was actually going on and what's going on now. So everybody who's in that kind of same vein, which can be traced back probably to the Powell memo in 1971, where we're now going to change the point of, of everything to do corporate lobbying, to change the government, to serve our interests as corporatists, Everything in that that whole vein up to the present day where the Lincoln Project is kind of a point of the spear for that thing now is all part of the same corrupt issue on the right. So when the left screams about the corruption on the right and they're like, ah, oh, the Koch brothers, you know, or whatever, they are pointing at something actually legitimate. That thing they call in their literature accurately neoliberalism. Neoliberal policy may have had a time when it was appropriate to help us move out of the stagflation of the 70s. It does not have – it is past its expiry date, I should say now. And it is – the people who are trying to cling to it and people who are trying to continue to force it are doing so against the interest of people all over the world and in this well, country. And, and, cross, and so, crossing the people in their own countries. Econo absolutely. Economically, yeah, absolutely. I, I, right, I, and pocketing every dime of it for themselves. Right. All right, that, this is another conversation we have to have. This is fabulous. Um, okay, last two minutes we have. We're talking to uh, James Lindsay. You've got to follow him on Twitter, Conceptual James. The website is newdiscourses.com. The book is Cynical Theories. Really, you are doing yourself a favor Big time. Wh whoever you like politically, wherever you think you stand on the spectrum, read the book. So, two things. Number one, beyond this book, read it. I would say everybody read Andrew Breitbart's Righteous Indignation, especially Chapter 3, where he maps this out in very, very digestible form. I build upon it in my book, War for America's Soul, Chapter 6. But read, read James's book. What else should people who are just waking up to the threat of whatever you want to call it, wokeism, critical theory, what else should they read? And then on top of that, James, if you really want to do something about it beyond I don't know how we're going to begin to break up the, the, the mafia that is the, the, the schools of education. What can general listeners and viewers do, in your opinion? Okay, so, I mean, I don't mean to shill for myself. It's not usually my style. But I created the website New Discourses to try to make something that people can read. It's not to say that there's nothing out there. Um, there are other books. Uh, Mike Gonzalez's book, The yes. Plot to Change America, is not bad. Um, I've read that. Uh, Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies, I think is important, especially to the second part of your question. Where I'm going to mention Solzhenitsyn here in a second, as it is, uh, for what the average person can do. Um, but I do encourage people to go read 
new discourses. I think I've published close to half a million words in the last year, wow. most of which I wrote myself to try to get information out about this. So you can see, I know it's a, it's a little bit heady. It's a little bit scholarly. You're right about Breitbart. Breitbart read these guys and is extremely good at um, breaking it down in a way that's more digestible than I'm a little scholarly past that. Um, you may want to read... Um, is it Martin Gurry? Gurry is certainly the last name, G-U-R-R-I, Revolt of the Public, for example, to see the role that the Internet plays, these, these social networks play in, in what's happening now. It's a different kind of tack. It's not going to explain to you the nature of this side of the problem. It's going to explain to you the nature of the information world that we're trapped in. Uh, I do encourage everybody, though, to go read some Herbert Marcuse, especially Repressive Tolerance, for themselves directly. And to take the time to understand it, it will take you a little bit of work. I'm publishing a lecture series on it in podcast form on New Discourses right now. Part three just out of four just came out yesterday. Great. So um, you really need to understand that essay. Uh, a lot of people are emailing me and telling me that listening to my podcast while they have the essay open on their screen is helping them really Cause, digest. Because it's not fun reading. I've done it. No, it's, it's not. not. <laughs> it's not fun reading. And then what not. can people do? What should they do? What role do we have as taxpayers, voters, citizens? Sure. So practically speaking, the first thing you have to know is you have to resist. You have to resist. We are at the point where it's not a question of should I. It is you must. Um, how you resist is up to you. And this is where I want to quote Solzhenitsyn, um, from the Gulag Archipelago, where he says, may the lie come into the world, may it triumph even, but not through me. And you have to have that attitude. The lie, stop repeating the lies. Stop going along with it just to save your own skin or because you're not sure. Look into it. Don't participate in the lie. Um, the consequences are, are there, but they're not high yet. They will get higher. It will get worse, not better, the longer people participate in the lie. Beyond that, I recommend people start to organize locally. Start showing up to your school board meeting. Chances yeah. are your school board is completely cooked, and it was cooked by 12 activists, more than likely, or yeah. something like that. Less than 20. If 600 people start showing up to the school board meeting, 600 parents, pissed off parents, start showing up to all of them, they're going to have a mess on their hands. We see that already happening in the Lowell School in San Francisco where the parents are outraged. We let, see it let in New York share, City. We see it in Virginia. Let me share this with you. Yesterday we had a guest on the show. Uh, we talked about the governor of Virginia trying to impose transgenderism into the schools in such a way that the parents are cut out. The person we had on the show said, go to this website today. You've got till midnight to make a comment. There were 19 comment boards on various proposed legislation the one about transgenderism in the schools wokeism every 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 other board had zero comments one had two comments that one as of midnight after she came on the show 9800 comments listen to james what you do matters and it is almost always a tiny minority isn't it james there are so many cases where people have dug in and tried to fight back in their school systems and written to me and said, I found out it was nine activists yeah. or they're taking over our city council. And I found out that it's a handful, 12 or 14 activists, zero of whom are actually constituents. It's actually a very small number of people. But the problem is, is that everybody else has a job. Everybody else has something better to do. Nobody wants to show up. 
and it doesn't take that much. And if you have the, I, I listen to this. I'm, you know, I'm not personally Christian, but I listen to these Christian pastors I'm friends with a lot, and they talk, and I love it. They talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And so you have to figure out what your gifts are. Can you learn this and stand up? Can you speak up? Can you get on the school board and just put up a bulwark against this? Can you give money to people who are fighting it, who who are able to do some other thing? And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about anybody who's up there standing up or doing something. Can you do it in a more quiet way? Find a foundation that does this or or doesn't. Can you just find a way to not live the lie, to move around? You have to figure out what your gifts are and give. So, a beautiful message to end on. I'll just say this: um, I see you. I see in you the thing that motivates me the most, and it is when you're pissed off at witnessing injustice. And I'm not using the woke sense. I mean, just it's the same for Andrew Breitbart. The thing he hated the most was bullies. I think that's what started you on your on your journey. Uh, you've done incredible work. You keep doing it. I, I'm sure it's been at a serious cost to, you know, professional career uh, futures and horizons. But, guys, listen to this man. Do not participate in the lie. If you do that, we will actually come back to the truth as a civilization. The book is Cynical Theories. Read it, order it, sp- share it, give it to your friends. The website is newdiscourses.com, and he's James Lindsay. Hope to get you back. So much more to discuss. Thank you for taking the time today, James. Absolutely. Thank you so much. God bless.